Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church, luckiest man in the world. Uh, delighted to say hello to all of you. Anybody joining us by audio, video, podcast, we love you. We welcome you. Thank you for being a part of this worship service. Anybody in the cafe, we love you guys so much. We have about uh, 80, uh, a group of about 80 uh, of our church at Ridgecrest this, this week for a youth camp, huge camp. So be in prayer for our teenagers there and all of the counselors. Among those counselors is my wife, Casey. Maybe they need her there, but I probably need her worse. Uh, so, so pray for me. Y'all, she was gone in Atlanta last week, and then she came home and basically swapped suitcases and left again. And uh, I did okay the first week. It's starting to catch up with me now, though. Um, I forgot to feed the dog today, and I thought, oh, I should turn around and go feed the dog. And I thought, no, I forgot to buy dog food last week. So there's no dog food. We're just lucky we live in the country. She can go kill something today. And, uh, and, and actually, y'all, she rolled in something dead. I'm not really just complaining, but she's rolled in something dead. And she smells so bad. And it is going to be so hard to pretend like I don't smell it till Casey comes home where she can, she can give the dog a bath. You know, because if I actually act like I smell it, I got to wash her and, and bathe her. And this, I, I, need, I need mama so bad just to, just to come on home. Uh, open your Bibles. I should have given you more warning. Open your Bibles to the book of Joel. Uh, Joel is one of those really, really difficult to find minor prophets, and that is one of the reasons why we started this series entitled Short-Winded Sermons. Y'all were hoping short-winded would refer to my sermon, but I'm really talking about the minor prophets whose writings tend to be very, very brief, very short. Find the big book of Isaiah, followed by the big book of Jeremiah, Lamentations, the big book of Ezekiel, the big book of Daniel. Then you'll get to Hosea, which we did last week. And right after Hosea is the little book of Joel. Joel is a beautiful, beautiful little book in the Old Testament. He's a prophet. We don't know anything about him at all other than the fact that these sermons, this message bears his name. We know that when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he chose a, a text, a passage from the book of Joel, in, in the last days I will pour out my spirit, and uh, that is how uh, Peter explained the book of, the, the day of Pentecost from the book of Joel. But I want us to look at the larger message of Joel, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to jump right in. Keep your Bibles open and handy throughout the message, because we're going to keep going back. Uh, this is just so beautiful, so very good. This past week, as pastor, I, I think I have spent a lot of time with children because of Bible school, but when the kids left, I've spent a lot of time with hurting people. Our, our congregation, our community is always, always filled with hurting people. Uh, Joel is a word uh, to hurting people, and, and this is where the message begins. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Joel. The Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all who live in the land, in all your history, has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your children about this in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. And here's the story. Listen. After cutting locusts finished eating the crops, swarming locusts took what was left. And after them came the hopping locusts and then the stripping locusts too. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers. All the grapes are ruined and all your sweet wine is gone. A vast army of locusts has invaded my land, a terrible army too numerous to count. 
Its teeth are like lion's teeth. Its fangs are like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my grapevines, ruined my fig trees, stripping their bark and destroying it, leaving the branches white and bare. Weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband. For there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning. The ministers of the Lord are weeping. The fields are ruined, the land is stripped bare, the grain is destroyed, the grapes have shriveled, and the olive oil is gone. Despair, all you farmers, wail, all you vine growers, weep because the wheat and the barley, all the crops of the field are ruined. The grapevines have dried up, the fig trees have withered, the pomegranate trees, the palm trees, the apple trees, all the fruit trees have dried up, and the people's joy has dried up with them. What's happened? Joel has been given a message from the Lord at a very particular moment in the history, the life of God's people. What has happened? Can you tell from the text? What has recently happened? Y'all gonna make me read all that again. All all those grapes gotta shrivel again. What's happened? Verse six, locusts. Yeah, locusts. There has been a plague of locusts. And this isn't spiritual language. This isn't Joel talking about bugs, but really talking about something else. This is real life. There has been a swarm, a plague of locusts that has destroyed everything. Everything. Everything is gone. There was a little girl whose favorite thing in all the world was a Barbie lunchbox, Barbie lunchbox. It was plastic. It had a little thermos inside, a clip uh, for the thermos, and you could put your sandwich and your chips and all that stuff. It was her favorite thing in the world. She carried it all of the time, just all, all of the time. But, but, but one day she came to the car after school, and her mother was picking her up, and the girl was just in pieces. Her lunchbox was gone. She, she couldn't find her lunchbox. It was lost at school. And she was devastated. She was in the car crying and crying and crying, nine years old, crying and crying and crying. Mom tried to explain that they could buy another lunchbox, tried to explain that, that, that you know, she'd had a lunchbox a long time, but maybe you could go find a, a better lunchbox, maybe something bigger, maybe something nicer. And the little girl was just screaming, no, 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 I need my lunchbox. I want my lunchbox. Finally, the mother thought, this is a good opportunity for a teachable lesson. So the mother said to the daughter, they're driving, the girl's in the backseat, mom's in the front seat, kids just crying, falling to pieces. Mom said, honey, you know how we talk about how God doesn't want us to just fall in love with material things? That lunchbox was material, and it doesn't really have a lot of value. It's the spiritual things that matter in life, not material things. And your lunchbox was material. The little girl just said, no. Mom, no, it wasn't material, it was plastic. <laughs> now you laugh, but you, do you remember being a kid? Do you remember how, how deeply you felt the losses that you experienced in childhood? I mean, you've probably been through more serious things by now in your life, and you've lost more valuable things than what you lost in childhood. But, but still, when you're a kid, th- those first losses are, are, are really, really difficult and, and devastating. The, the saddest day to my life, and, and I've had some very sad days, but the saddest day of my life is still probably the day my pet possum died. 
I mean, as a possum. Uh, but don't get me started. I, I mean, she was, it was a possum. But, but man, I, I, I loved that possum. She would wrap her tail around my finger and hang. I, I mean, we were close, and she died. I buried her by the garden, and, and it, it still is just the saddest day of my life because, honestly, it's the first time I'd lost anything. And, and up until that point, as a child, I just probably had not really reckoned that, that life could permit that kind of suffering. You know what I'm saying? You, you don't really understand how things can be taken away from you, but you learn. You learn. And the longer you live, the, the more of life you experience, the more you realize how, how life uh, has a way of taking things away. You know what I'm saying? Whether it's a, uh, a sudden phone call, I, I still can hear the sound of the phone as it rang at 1.30 a.m. one night in our family's house, and it changed everything. Uh, you know, those phone calls. And, and suddenly, I mean, nothing's the same. How, how quickly, just like that. M- maybe it's, it's the job you lost. Maybe it's the bad news you got from the doctor where one day you're feeling fine, and you feel like you're fine, and the next day you have stage four something. It's just that fast because that's how immediately a storm can blow up or the drought settles in and and, and the corn crop is is lost. And you understand we've lived through all of this. Fire comes and takes everything, your house and and everything else. Uh, Whether it's illness or or, or drought or or betrayal, death, I'm just saying you can lose it also very quickly. There are probably a million plus ways that your life can collapse. And, and although right at this moment you can feel very, very secure and, and feel like you're on top of the world, it's, that's how quickly everything gets pulled out from under your feet. You, you, you can lose it all. And you don't even have to lose it all. If you lose enough of what's important, your heart is just ripped out. And, and then what do you do? This really is the situation that Joel is preaching to. They've lost everything. They've literally lost everything. And in those first 12 verses, Joel just rehearses the long, long list of everything that's gone. It was sort of like dominoes. Once the locusts came, and it sounds like the locusts came in swarm after swarm after swarm. He says, first it first came um, the hopping locust, the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the stripping locust. I mean, I don't know if those are technical names, but he's just uh, explaining the, the wave after wave of locusts that came. And, and in a matter of days, everything is just gone. Everything is gone. Remember, this isn't really a culture that has money, that has currency. Everything is sort of wrapped up in, in your land, in your agriculture. And there's now nothing, nothing. There's no way to eat. There's no way to live. They, they, they've lost it all. So what are you supposed to do when you've lost it all? Most of us being the way we are, we try to make sense out of it. We need for life to, to make sense. It can't be random. It has to somehow have a purpose. And we start looking for a purpose that obviously we can't see, but we assume that God can. And, and that's why in many cases some of us aren't even very religious until we've lost it all. I mean, you know those people, right? I mean, they don't even really say God's name. They don't even think about God. But then when tragedy strikes, he's the first one they want to talk about. And their questions are usually accusing questions. Why did God let this happen? Where is God? You understand? It's, it's amazing how suddenly our hearts and minds turn to God when we've lost everything else. 
I guess we can't see the purpose. We assume that he can. And so we, we turn to him either in anger or in bewilderment or, or out of longing. We just begin to turn to God and, and we just want to know why. And that's typically the question. Why has this happened? I mean, once we begin to absorb what's actually happened, we need to know why, and we tend to turn that question toward God, or at least God becomes the focus in in that question. What is God doing? Why did God let this happen? And very, 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 very frequently people begin to wonder, is God trying to tell me something? Is God trying to tell me something? When the locusts come, swarm after swarm after swarm, and, and devour your life, the question you soon ask is, is God trying to tell me something? Well, if, if that is the question that you struggle with all of your life, then let me just clear that up for you right now. If you're wondering if God is trying to tell you something, the answer is always yes. Yes. Always God is trying to tell you something. So if that's your question, I can answer that one. I can't go much further than that, but I can answer that with confidence. Yes, God is trying to tell you something. God is always trying to tell you something. From the moment you were born, God's been trying to tell you something. And every single moment when you wake up, God is trying to tell you something. God is always speaking to you in many, many ways, but especially in your circumstances. God is trying to tell you something. He always is. So it is healthy. It is appropriate to listen. Now, you should always be listening. You should never, ever turn away from him. You should never stop listening for his voice. You should never stop asking what it is he needs you to know or understand. But you do. But I'm just saying, whatever it is that makes you turn back and start listening, then then you are back on the right track. Of course, God is trying to tell you something. You must listen. You must listen. So, Does that mean every single time, every single time a locust swarm blows up, does that mean God has sent the locust with a message for me? Is that what we're supposed to conclude here? That every problem I have is God's very, very heavy-handed way of trying to deliver a message to me. Every one of my problems, I mean, every time I get hit with a stomach virus, that's somehow God trying to teach me a lesson? Is, is that true? Is, is every single problem a message from God? Is it punishment for my sins? Am I being punished? I was at one time a young chaplain at Baptist Hospital East in Louisville, and I was assigned to the cancer floor. One of the very first patients I visited was a woman whose very first question to me was this question and she was newly diagnosed with devastating cancer with a very very bad prognosis and she looked straight at me and she said you're a minister right and I said yes I am and then she said I just need you to tell me is is God punishing me I, I don't know I didn't say that out loud, but I, I, I don't know. How, how would I know that? 
And I was not a very good chaplain, and I'm not a very good pastor now, but, but, but I've learned some things. And, and, and you can learn quite a lot just by reading the book of Job. You can learn a lot about suffering, but you can also learn something about keeping your mouth shut. And if you notice in the book of Job, Job's friends do pretty well until they open their mouths. And once they open their mouths, it all goes downhill from there. But because what Job's friends do is they start trying to explain Job's suffering to Job. And they don't seem to understand that they are not qualified to explain Job's suffering to Job. They don't know what God is doing in Job's life. Now, they like to think they know, but they don't know. And so sitting there in that room across that deathly ill woman, I was not going to assume that I knew what God was doing in her life. I, I don't know what God was doing in her life. Was God punishing her? I don't know. I can't say. So being a pretty quick thinker, she said, is God punishing me? You're a minister, right? Is God punishing me? I said, ma'am, I, I don't know. I can't say. What do you think? Because honestly, we don't know. I think that God could use something like cancer to punish a person. I, I really do. I think scripture says that God disciplines the children that he loves and I think it can be punishment. I think that sometimes we are supposed to be learning lessons, and maybe God sometimes allows these things to happen to teach us lessons. I, I, I'm not going to say God can't do that. I, I believe he can. But I don't know. I don't know why what is happening to you right now is happening. I, I'm your pastor. I love you. I pray for you every day. I ask God for wisdom in, in directing you. But, but, but I can't say that I know. I, I really can't say that I know, and I would become Job's comforters if I started trying to explain your suffering to you. That, that's why I, I basically would say, if you're wondering if God is punishing you, if you're wondering if God is trying to tell you something, why don't you just ask him? The scriptures say, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them just ask the Lord and he will give that wisdom. There's no mystery. It's the one prayer always guaranteed to be answered. You ask for wisdom, God will give you wisdom. You ask him. So the woman said, you're a minister, right? Am I being punished? I said, I have no idea, ma'am. I, I can't say that. I, I don't know. What do you think? And she looked back at me with tears now streaming down her eyes. And she said, no, no, no. She said, I know I'm not perfect. I, I, I know that, that I've sinned. I, I, I know, but I love the Lord with my whole heart, and, and I trust him, and I can't believe that he has sent this in some way to punish me. If, if you're wondering if God is trying to tell you something, the answer is yes, always. If you're wondering if your problems, your trials are, are punishment for sin, I, I don't know. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes the locusts are just locusts. You understand, we live in the world, and Jesus says in this world you'll have all kinds of trouble, and in that all kinds of trouble, locusts are included. Locusts and nearly anything else that can happen to you, it's, it's in there. Sometimes we face trouble just because we live in the world. Jesus says you're going to. So we're going to stumble. We're going to have problems. You're going to stump your toe. I mean, you're going to get the stomach virus. All kinds of horrible things will happen to you. It doesn't always mean that God has, has singled you out for a lesson or punishment. But sometimes he does. 
Sometimes he does, and sometimes you will be singled out for a lesson or for punishment. The only way you'll know is to turn to him. The only way you'll know is to ask him, and he will show you. And then if there's a lesson to be learned, if I were you, I'd just learn it quick and get this over with. Do you understand? If it's a lesson to be learned, learn it quick and move on with your life. Part of the problems for those of us who have a lot of troubles is we're slow learners. Learn it quick if it's a lesson, and then maybe you can move through this. But here's the thing. In in, in Joel's case, in, in, in the case of these locusts, it was punishment for sin. Go back and read in the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is addressing the people for one of the last times, and he's speaking for God. And what God says to the people is, I have brought you out of Egypt, I brought you out of slavery, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. But if you will not be my people, if you turn away from me, then you will soon experience all of the plagues that I sent upon Egypt. In other words, if you're going to become my enemy the way Egypt was my enemy, you're going to find out what my wrath is like. If you want to make me your enemy, then it's pretty soon you'll find that all of these blessings turn to curses. I mean, that's what God said in Deuteronomy. So all of the plagues that came upon Egypt will come upon you. So Joel receives this word from the Lord when the locusts come. And Joel is able to connect the dots, which is what the prophets do so well. With the inspiration of the Spirit, with the knowledge of God, Joel is able to understand that these locusts are not just locusts. This isn't just one of those seven-year Japanese beetles things. Understand, this is from God. This is that plague of locusts that Egypt had because they refused to listen to God. This plague of locusts now is for us from God. This is a message to us from God. This is what Joel preaches. And these aren't just locusts. In this particular case, Joel says, this is punishment for sin. And that's why he preaches. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Turn now. Come. Read this part. Chapter 2, verse 12. That is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but say the words. Tear your hearts instead. Shred your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your Don't tear your clothing in grief. You know that in the ancient world, one of the things they did at funerals, one of the things they did in any time of grieving was to literally rip their clothes. It was a sign of extreme anguish. It was the sign of mourning. They would literally take their hands and shred their clothes. But in this particular case, God says, I want you to come back to me. I want you to come back to me grieving. But, but it's not your clothes. I don't want you to shred your garment. I, I want you to shred your heart. That's interesting. What's he saying there? I, I think he's saying, I, I don't want an outward show. 
because you and I are pretty good at outward shows. When we've lost everything or when we're suffering or when we feel like God finally has got us under his thumb, we will sort of do anything it takes to end the pain. And so whatever it is, I mean, we're there. I mean, we will be at church. We will be volunteering for missions. I mean, we'll be promising God everything. We'll be writing checks. You know, I mean, we will do whatever it takes. But, but mostly we're just trying to end the pain. We just want to get out of whatever suffering that we feel like we're under, and we feel like maybe if we can buy God off, if we can pay God off with some, with, with some shows of, of repentance. And God says, I don't want your show. I don't want a show of repentance. I don't want you to go through motions. I don't just want to see your sorry behind dragged into church, understand. I want to see something real changing, and that change is going to take place in your heart. So why don't you shred your heart? Why don't you tear your heart? Come to me with a, with a broken heart. Because God knows when the brokenness is inward, when the change begins to take place inward, it will eventually make its way to the outside, and then that's not going to be a show. That's not just going to be a, a person who wants to end the suffering just going through motions. It's got to be an inward change. So the message of Joel to the people is you've got to turn. You've got to repent. But this has got to be real. This has got to be genuine, not just something you're going to do. You're going to be a little more religious until things get better. No, this is going to be a permanent change. It's permanent because there's something literally shifting inside your body, inside your chest. Your heart is changed. You come to me with a changed heart, God says. And then get this, this is probably like either the lamest or the greatest preaching ever. Verse 14, what does Joel say? Two words. Two words that I was never told ever to use in a sermon in seminary. Nobody ever said that when you really want to drive a point home, say, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Followed by one more powerful word. What's he saying? Who knows? Perhaps. Joel, is that the best you can do? Perhaps. Perhaps. I have lost everything. Everything is gone. I am hurting here, Joel, and you're telling me now to shred my heart. Come crawling back to God with a shredded heart, and who knows, perhaps. Who knows, perhaps. We're talking about God's mercy and forgiveness. We're talking about God's grace, and the best you got is a perhaps. Well, Maybe part of what helps us in the, in the heart-shredding part is when we really begin to understand the God we've sinned against. You and I have this remarkable way of somehow explaining away, excusing our sin. Even coming back to God, we usually come back with a God, forgive me, but you know I couldn't help it. You know, we always find a way to, you know, we're asking for forgiveness, but deep down inside, we often really don't really have a lot of anguish about our sin. Most of us wouldn't be coming back at all if it weren't for the suffering part. If it weren't for the fact that sin has consequences, most of us would love our sin. It's, it's just part of our nature. And so honestly, we just sort of learn. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's the way we preachers don't say perhaps enough. But somehow we've just learned to presume upon God's forgiveness. 
We think of God as being so easy. He is such a pushover. He's just like your grandmother who's so forgetful. You know, she can't remember your name. She's calling you your cousin's name. And when grandma's mad, all you got to do is, you know, hide her hearing aid and go out into the yard. Eventually, she'll forget. She forgets everything. She forgot her teeth. You know, she forgets her glasses. I mean, you know, if you just disappear and come back, she'll forget all about it. And that's how we deal with God. As if God, you know, he's mad now, and the locusts are coming now, but, you know, I'm just going to lay low. I'll kind of hide out in church a while. God's going to get over this. God always gets over it. He forgives. You don't understand God, do you? You don't understand the holiness of this God. You don't understand his wrath, and you don't understand your sin. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you could sin so blatantly in the face of a holy God? Do you understand his awesomeness? Do you understand his majesty? He doesn't have to put up with you. Your sin is a direct affront to his holiness. Your sin is an insult to his holiness. He does not even have to let you live. You and I are worthy of condemnation. Our sin brings us under his wrath, and that is what we deserve. We deserve his wrath. Your sin, my sin, is like a fly that goes straight up his nose, and he doesn't have to take it. He does not have to endure our insult, our sin. He does not have to endure our arrogance. He is God. We are nothing. We are sinners before him. Do you understand that? He doesn't owe us anything. We are indebted to him. So when we come back asking for forgiveness, he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us forgiveness. We deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation. We don't deserve anything from him. Who do you think you are? You just sin, and you sin, and you act like it's no big deal. You act like your sin somehow is not an insult to God. You tell yourself that other people are worse. What does it matter? We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve wrath. We're all in the same boat. You're no better. And your sin is no whiter. Every single one of us stand beneath the, the certainty of his wrath. Do you not understand that? He doesn't owe you. He's not obligated to forgive you. He's God. He's a holy God. And we deserve his wrath. So when Joel tells him to come back, shred your heart, he says, and just pray that he forgives you. Just hope that he forgives you. You don't deserve that, and you best not count on it. Understand who you are. Understand what you deserve. Understand who he is. Who knows? Perhaps. Grace is the kind expression of mercy from a God terribly wronged. Terribly wronged. Grace is the kind expression of mercy from a God you have terribly wronged. Grace. That's why we say it's amazing. 
See, it doesn't amaze you because, you know, you just assume it's there. You, you take it for granted. You don't take grace for granted. You don't take kindness for granted. You don't take mercy for granted. It comes every single time, every single day as a gift. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve his kindness. We don't deserve his grace. Who knows, Joel says, all you can do is come back to him, shred your heart and come back to him, appeal for his mercy, beg for his mercy. Get this. Verse 25, chapter 2. The Lord says, the Lord says, I will give you back what you lost. Where does that come from? I'm going to give you back what you lost. We don't even... We don't even take for granted that, that our sins will be forgiven. We know that we deserve wrath, but it's not even just forgiveness that we receive. I'll give you back what you lost to the locust, the hopping locust, the stripping locust, the cutting locust. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. But once again, you will have all the food you want. And you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. You will know that I am among my people, that I am the Lord your God, and there's no other. Never again will my people be disgraced. How does he do that? How does he do that? You ask why we suffer. Why is this happening to me? That's no mystery. It's no mystery why we suffer. The world is full of suffering, and, and we all deserve it. We don't deserve anything good. We just... Suffering's no mystery. Grace is the mystery. That God would punish me, that, 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 that should be a given, but that God would forgive me. And not just forgive me, that God would then say, and by the way, I, I'll pick up the tab for your sin. I'll, I'll pay the full price for everything that, that you wasted. It, it's the prodigal son story. Do you understand that? It's, it's the prodigal son story. Now, remember the prodigal son, man. He wasted all the money, man. He, you know, he was out there. He, he was doing it. We don't know what he did with it, but you just fill in the blanks. It's probably the same thing you did do with it, man. He went through that money like poop through a goose. But then the scripture says that, that he wasted his money, and then there was a famine, well, you know, that's complicated. He, he did waste all of his money, but he didn't make the famine come. It's just kind of like that. Part of it he deserves, part of it he doesn't. It's just life. He says, I'll just go back to my father. And he has nowhere else to go. I don't even know how repentant he was, but he had enough good sense to go back to his father. Go back to my father. And I'll, I'll just say, Father, I don't really expect to be your son anymore. I've blown that part, I know, but... Um, because you hire me just to work, I'll work. Father would hear none of that, you, you know. He, 
he just puts the robe on his back and the sandals on his feet. I, I mean, he just restores him. And, and this is the surprising part, that the prodigals leave home and, and blow the money. There's no surprise there, that they suffer because of that. They end up in the pig pen. There's no surprise there. The surprise is the way the father responds when the prodigal comes home. I mean, that's the part you can't explain. God says, I will redeem, I will restore, I will give you back everything that the locusts have eaten. I sent them and you deserved it, but now you're going to have plenty of food to eat. I'm going to bless you and no one's ever going to see my people disgraced. This is the goodness of God. That word there when he says, I will give you back what you lost, it's, it's not the word shalom, but it's related to the word shalom. Now, what's the word shalom mean? It may be the only Hebrew word some of us know. What's shalom mean? Peace, yeah, it literally means wholeness, completeness. So what God is saying is, I'm going to make you whole again. Now now remember, it is we who broke ourselves and our lives. We blew up our own lives. We, We did that to ourselves. We shoot ourselves in the foot every single day that we live. We do that to ourselves. That's the sinful nature in us. But God knows that. But God just says, you return to me and I will take it. I will make it my responsibility. I I will make you whole. I will fill you back up. Now, I know you wasted it all in one place, but I will give it all right back to you. I'm going to restore everything that the locusts have eaten. I'll, I'll give it back to you. That's amazing. So right now, some of you are wondering if, if you could possibly have your life back. You've blown it. I mean, you've really blown it. Big time, you've blown it, and, and you did it. Now, like the prodigal son, you did part of it, and then there was the famine. There's a whole part of this that you didn't cause, but now you're suffering because of it. It's no matter. I know it's complicated, but still... You brought this on yourself, and you know that. You've blown it up yourself. And now the question is, how can I ever get it back? Is, is there any way to be restored? And the answer to you first is no. You can't do this by yourself. You have blown it. You have destroyed your own life. You've wasted it by your choices, by your sin, by your stubbornness, by your ignorance. You, you've blown this. It, it, it's gone. It's gone. But if you'll return, the Lord says, if you'll, if you'll return to me with, with, with all your heart, don't tear your clothing, shred your heart and come back to me, then, then I, I'll give you back everything that was lost. Now, what does that mean Exactly. He says, I'll give you back what the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, the cutting locusts, all these waves of locusts, they took it away. God says, I'll give it all back. But what does God mean there? Because honestly, that's years of work. I mean, those crops are gone. He's not saying you're going to go out in the field in the morning and all of those crops magically back in the field. It's not that. I mean, honestly, those years are really gone, that they really are gone. And the years you have wasted in your marriage, they really are gone. What, what you have destroyed and spoiled, it's gone. It really is. It may be gone forever. I can't say what, a, what an impossible God might do, but I'm telling you, it's just gone. Those years you don't get back. We have certain seasons of life and certain opportunities that come around once, and, and you blow it and it's gone. So I'm not sure that God is saying that he's just going to simply erase all of the consequences of your foolishness. 
all of the consequences of your sin. I don't think that's what God is saying. That there are certain things that are gone and they don't come back. Some of you have blown it with your family and you may never get an opportunity with your children. You understand the damage may be done and they may not come home to you. I don't know, who knows? But what's God saying? When he says, I'll give it back to you. I'll give you back what was lost. How does he do that? Well, I would say this. I would put it this way. Grace calls you into a new future where God's kindness overwhelms the disaster of your sin. It's, it's a new future. Right now, on the path that you are on, there's no way to get to where you wish you could be. There's no way to restore your family based on your path, based on your power. It's not in you to do it. I don't know if you'll ever bring those kids home again, you understand? I don't know if there's going back and getting that job again. And I'm not sure that's always how God operates. What God promises is His kindness. His kindness... has the power, the ability to restore your life tomorrow in ways you can't even imagine today. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yesterday is gone and last year is gone and, and, and the mistakes you've made are, are, are made, but, but God is able by his mercy to rewrite the story of your life in a way you don't understand yet. When God says, I will pay you back what the locusts have eaten, he's just saying, you just wait till next year. You wait till you see the next crop. You wait to see what I do next. See, grace always calls me into the future. The, the past is gone. The past is done. There is no changing the past, but the future is still in question. It is the future that can still be changed, and that's why I need the Lord. That's why I need his power in my life. I mean, today is a gift, but, but tomorrow is still coming. Tomorrow is where my hope lives, you understand? And God calls me into a new future. His mercy completely rewrites the story when you appeal to his mercy. Kindness will overwhelm the disaster of your sin. I don't know what you've lost. I don't know how much you've lost. And I don't necessarily know why you're in this spot. My hunch is whether it's because of your sin or not because of your sin, your sin's not helping anything. Can we at least admit that? Even if it is a famine that I didn't cause, I'm still the prodigal son that blew all my money yesterday, and that was a really bad choice, and now I've got to live those consequences today. I mean, can we at least all admit that our sin just makes it worse? That's why it makes perfect sense today, while there's still time to do something about tomorrow, you you come home to the Lord. That's what Joel said. Just got to come back to him. Who knows? Perhaps he'll forgive. And then in a way you haven't even imagined yet, he will restore your life. He will make you whole again. The way he can bless you tomorrow is beyond anything you can imagine today.
but you need to come back to with all your heart. Pray with me. God, your grace is amazing. Of all of the things in this life that we can't explain or understand, the way you, a holy God, continue to show patience and mercy and forgiveness upon sinners like us, Lord, that in itself is absolutely indescribable. That we are the recipients of such mercy and grace. That you, O oh God, would not just forgive our sins, but then gladly and out of kindness begin to restore all of the things that we have wasted by our foolishness, by our sinfulness. God, there are men and there are women and there are boys and girls and teens in the sound of my voice who are wondering if their life can ever be made whole again. They're wondering if what is lost can ever be found again. They're wondering if anything beautiful can be made out of the mess of their life. And Lord Jesus, the answer is yes. The answer because of the cross, because of Jesus, because of your grace and mercy and kindness, the answer is always Yes, you can restore everything broken, but you have to have all of the pieces. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would return to you today with broken hearts, with shredded hearts, and that we would give all of ourselves to you out of the simple hope that you might yet make something beautiful out of us. God, this is beyond what we could possibly ask for or imagine. And yet, Lord, today we find ourselves in desperate need of your grace. Would you pour it out for us? Would you give us one more chance to serve you, to follow you? Would you allow us, Lord, to walk in the blessings of your kindness and not in the curses of our sin? Lord, will you not? Create for us a new tomorrow if we would return to you today. This is not what we deserve, but by your grace, we ask for it and we receive it, Lord Jesus, as a gift from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus' sake.